0: You are about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. There will be merry times at Worley in November when they start on little girls, for they will do twenty wenches like the horse before next march. Don't think you are likely to catch them cutting the beasts. They go too quiet and lie low for hours till your men have gone. Mr. Adalji, him they said was locked up, is going to Brum on Sunday night to see the captain near Northfield about how it's to be done with so many detectives about, and I believe they are going to do some cows in the daytime instead of at night. I think they are going to kill beasts nearer here soon, and I know Cross Keys Farm and West Cannock Farm are the first two on the list. You blowed it, Blackguard. I will shoot you with father's gun through your thick head if you come in my way or go sneaking to any of my pals. A letter addressed to Lieutenant Anderson of the Cannock Police, received in 1903. This is Episode 61, The Case of George Adolgi. This story is another one I first read about in one of Charles Fort's books. In Wild Talents, I think it was, he describes various spates of animal mutilation in various places, particularly in England, and mentions the following case. But when looking into the case further, I soon found that the case has strange features, far beyond those of the actual mutilations. And in fact, in some ways, the animal killings themselves are only a small portion of the story. I haven't ever put a warning on an episode before, but I should mention that this episode obviously involves something I know many people, myself included, have issues hearing about, which is the killing of animals. I'll try, as always, not to go too much more into detail than I need to, though. Also, some of the quotes from the letters involve some rather crude racial language, but this, too, I think is necessary to fully understand the case. So, my first Patreon... Shout out because I got my first patron a few days ago. So uh, let me bring another thing here. So, Eric Todd, thank you for becoming a patron. Anyway, on with a story. Shaporji Adalji was born in either 1841 or 1842 in Bombay, India. An in ethnic Parsi. Around 1856, he converted to Christianity and eventually joined the Anglican Church. He traveled between various parishes, acting as curate. In June of 1874, he married an Englishwoman, Charlotte Stonham, and the two had three children, George, Horace, and Maud. In 1876, he was appointed vicar of St. Mark's Church in Great Worley, Staffordshire. What exactly led to the harassment the family experienced from 1888 until 1903 and beyond can be a matter for conjecture. Arthur Conan Doyle notes that it was likely that a good bit of it stemmed from simple racism, and a few that, as an Indian, and therefore a colonial subject, Shaporgi and the rest of his family were outsiders in Great Worley. And as an Anglican clergyman, it is perhaps doubly so, since... As most people saw it, Indians were the ones the English were supposed to be preaching to, not the other way around. Another aspect that may have led to it is that, ethnicity aside, Shapurji seems to have been the, short, the sort of man who'd made enemies. Not that he did anything illegal, or really even questionable, if I'm honest. He was just a quite hard-headed, opinionated, kind of stubborn man. The singular harassment to which the Adalji family was subjected then began in September 1888 with an odd note asking Shaporji to subscribe the household to the Wolverhampton Express and Star. But the letter writer followed up this fairly innocuous request with a threat. If you don't take the star, I shall shoot you with a pistol I have in my house, or else I shall break your windows. In December... The windows of the vicarage were, indeed, broken, and Sheporgi began fearing to leave the house on his ministerial duties. Soon a 17-year-old girl employed as a maidservant in the Adalji household, Elizabeth Foster, began receiving letters signed Thomas Hitchens. Chalk messages signed T.H. were scrawled on the walls of the vicarage, saying that the Adaljis were a wicked family. Soon, in the missives addressed to Elizabeth Foster, Hitchens proclaimed that he was the one who wrote the letters to her, quote, Black Master. He threatened to shoot Elizabeth whenever he saw her. At this point, the threats beginning to escalate, Reverend Adalji called the police. Sergeant Upton of the Staffordshire Constabulary set up watch on the home. The surveillance turned up nothing, although it was noted that no letters had arrived. When the police abandoned all scrutiny, more letters were found on the Vicarage grounds. One, found on January 1st of the next year, was addressed to Elizabeth. It was found in the hall, the adhesive on the envelope still wet. One was found on the doorstep, written on a page torn out from the school exercise books used by the children. In this case, young George Dalgy, nearly 13, thought he saw the shadowy form of another man on the porch. But when his mother went outside, she saw Elizabeth Foster walking away. Another was found, written on the same paper, later the same day. Sergeant Upton returned to the Great Worley Vicarage, and acquiring samples of handwriting from everyone in the house, he arrived at the conclusion that it was Elizabeth who was guilty of sending the letters, and after reviewing the evidence, Shaporji agreed. Elizabeth was originally charged with threatening to murder Reverend Adalji, but after it was made apparent that her family could not afford a defense, the charges were reduced, and she was freed on probation. Around the time of Elizabeth Foster's conviction, a new player began to be established among the Staffordshire Police. George Augustus Anson, a son of Thomas George Anson, the second Earl of Lichfield. eventually appointed chief constable in the Staffordshire Police Department. Anson was possessed of very much a Victorian nobleman's mindset, and convinced of what, in his mind, constituted Englishness and being talked down to by an Indian, of all things, wasn't it. He asked how this Hindu, who could only talk with a foreign accent, came to be a clergyman of the Church of England, and in charge of an important working-class parish. It was also claimed that he expressed a belief that Elizabeth Foster was innocent of the 1888-1889 letter-writing campaign, and that the entire Adolje family knew it, and still allowed her to be charged. In the next few years, Shaporji was also engaged in liberal politics, holding meetings at the church-run school, which was an unpopular move. Another, was, another unpopular move was when he planned to sell off that same school building, which put him into conflict with many of his parishioners, who were opposed to that move. One of these was W.H. Brooks, a local grocer. Although the move was later abandoned, the damage was done. The first letters of the second wave of harassment arrived only two days after the political meeting held at the school, and it was this that led Conan Doyle to believe that one of the primary motivations behind the harassment was political as well as racial. At first, though, they seemed fairly benign and indeed juvenile, mentioning and expressing anger at Fred Brooks, the son of W.H. Brooks. Another schoolboy named Fred Wynn also received letters. He also attended Walsall Grammar School, and some of the contents of his letters seem to suggest that the writer was a third schoolboy named Royden Sharp. Here the eldest son of the vicar enters the letters, with George A. Dalgy being referred to as a bloody, blasted, damn bloody, cursed, bugger, bleeding, blasting kid. The letters also referred a good bit to Lucy Brooks, a schoolteacher and an older sister of Fred's, who had been accused of mistreating students. It was suggested by differences in handwriting and style of speech that two people were involved, one likely older and one likely younger. Soon, however, harassment of the Indian family ramped up considerably. The letters began threatening to poison the water at the vicarage, to the extent that Chaporji constructed a shed around the water pump and put a padlock on the door. Whoever the sender was, began to send apologies for various misdoings of Shaporgi's to London newspapers. Advertisements were placed in newspapers. Postcards were sent to various individuals. Tradesmen were contacted, and goods bought in the name of the Adalgis. These were, according to Shaporgi, wines, spirits, medicines, books, furniture, clothes, musical instruments, and a host of other things. Lawyers were contacted and told the Adalgis had information on cases on which they were working. Police contacted and told the same. Doctors were sent for to attend to non-existent medical conditions. Another vicar, signing himself a victim, wrote a letter published in the London Standard stating that Shaporji Adalji had supposedly found an unconscious woman who had asked for him. When that other vicar came to Great Worley, he was told that there was no woman, and the letter he had received was a hoax. In his letter to the newspaper, he said that another vicar in an Arundel had received a similar letter. As was said, one cannot help acknowledging the admirable ingenuity of the campaign. Beyond the letters, the windows of the vicarage were broken, bags of feces were placed on the doorstep and feces smeared on the windows, and various small items were placed and found on the grounds. One odd incident involved a key placed on the doorstep to the vicarage on December 12, 1892. It was soon found that the key was from Walsall Grammar School. Captain Anson wrote to Shaporgi saying that he suggested that his eldest son, since he attended school there, was guilty. He actually hadn't attended school there, but Anson made the accusation anyway. The letter read in part, Will you please ask your son, George, from whom the key was obtained, which was found on your doorstep on December 12th? The key was stolen, but if it can be shown that the whole thing was due to some idle freak or practical joke, I should not be inclined to allow any police proceedings to be taken in regard to it. If, however, the persons concerned in the removal of the key refuse to make any explanation of the subject, I must necessarily treat the matter in all seriousness as a theft. I may say at once that I shall not pretend to believe any protestations of ignorance which your son may make about the key. My information on the subject does not come from the police. Even after confronted with clear evidence that George didn't attend the school, and was in fact studying law in Birmingham, Anson, while he conceded the key had been stolen by some other student of Wallsall, refused to believe George Adaljean innocent of any wrongdoing. He soon began to accuse George of being the writer of many of the letters sent in the second wave. In a letter written on July 25, 1895, he says, I did not tell Mr. Perry that I know the name of the offender, though I told him I had my suspicions. I prefer to keep my suspicions to myself until I'm able to prove them, and I trust to be able to obtain a dose of penal servitude for the offender, as, although great care has apparently been exercised to avoid, as so far as possible, anything which would constitute any serious offense in law, the person who writes the letters has overreached himself in two or three instances, in such a manner as to render him liable to the most serious punishment. I have no doubt that the offender will be detected. Some of the letters displayed a fixation on deviant sex. One particularly vile letter was sent to the maid of the Adolgies, a young woman named Nora, proclaiming to be from Thomas Hitchings, chief constable of West Bromwich. As an aside here, many of the letters defended Elizabeth Foster, who had been con- convicted in 1889, and the similarity of this name and the one to which, with which many of the 1888-1889 communications were signed is to be noted. Hitchings referred to Reverend Adalji as a, quote, infernal black man and said that he starved, beat, and tortured his servants. He was soon to be arrested for vile, gross immorality. He said he would pay Nora 50 pounds to kill the Adalge's cat, told her to say that she had discovered W.H. Brooks and Mrs. Adalge having sex under her bed, and that she had been raped by both of them, as well as by George Dalgy and Fred Brooks. She was even told to, Put shit with anything you may cook for the family, and save all your piss, and put it to boiled potatoes. She owed a duty to yourself, God or crucified Savior to stop the vile career of the Blackguard and the murderer, this Pharisee. But at the end of 1895, the second wave of harassment had ceased. In the next few years, George A. Dalgy became a solicitor with a practice in Birmingham, but was resident at the Great Whirly Vicarage the entire time. In 1901, he wrote a book called Railway Law for the Man on the Train. By 1903, the harassment came back in force, however, and this time, George A. Dalgy was singled out for treatment. On February 2nd, 1903, a horse belonging to Joseph Holmes was slashed and killed near Great Worley. This horse apparently did not die from its wounds, but did need to be euthanized later. On Easter Sunday, April 10th, another horse, this one belonging to a town counselor named Mr. Thomas, was killed. This was followed on May 2nd, by a cow belonging to a Mrs. Bungay. May 14th saw another horse, belonging to Henry Badger, killed, as well as several sheep belonging to T.J. Green. Two cows were killed near Browns Hill Colliery on June 6th. It seems to have been at this point that it was first noted by some that George A. Dalji often took walks at night. On June 29th, two more horses belonging to a Mr. Blewett of the Quinton Colliery were attacked. Some sources say both these were killed, but it appears that only one was. The other was slashed on the flank and survived. It was the next day that the first and the third wave of letters appeared, but unlike before, these were not sent to the vicarage. The first, sent to Sergeant Rowley of Hensford, was written in all capital letters and read as follows. A party whose initials you will guess will be bringing a new hook home by train from Walsall on Wednesday night, and he will have it in his special long pocket under his coat. And if you or your pals can get his coat pulled aside a bit, you'll get sight of it, as it's an inch and a half longer than the one he threw out of sight when he heard someone a-sloping it after him this morning. He will come by that after five or six, or if he don't come tomorrow, he is sure to on Thursday, and you have made a mistake not keeping all the plain men in hand. You sent them away too soon. Why, just think, he did it close where two of them were hiding only a few days gone by. But sir, he has got eagle eyes, and his ears is as sharp as a razor, and he is as fleet of foot as a fox, and is noiseless, and he crawls on all fours up to the poor beasts, and fondles them a bit, and then he pulls the hook smart across them, and out their entrails fly before they guess they are hurt. You want a hundred detectives to run him in red-handed, because he is so fly, and knows every nook and corner. You know who it is, and I can prove it, but until a hundred pounds reward is offered for a conviction, I shan't split no more. On July 4th, Mr. Blewett, owner of the two horses but recently slashed, received a postcard saying there was a connection between the animal slashings, Jack the Ripper, and the Fenians. It was signed John L. Sullivan. On the 7th, a letter was sent to a policeman named Sergeant Robinson, this one was signed Wilfred Greaterex, a student at the Walsall Grammar School whose father was Royden Sharp's landlord. It was later found that Greaterex could not have written the letter because he was on the Isle of Man at the time. It described the, quote, Whirly Gang, which was responsible for the animal mutilations, a leader named merely the captain, Mr. Brow, of Great Whirly Colliery, Fred Wooten, several men named Egger, Faraday, Stanley, and Quibell and George A. Dalgie. On July 10th, Robinson received another, unsigned, letter, which threatened to begin murdering girls, and implicated George A. Adalji in the slayings. This is the letter quoted in the introduction. Another offered to give up the name of the captain of the gang. "'I have got a daredevil face and can run well, and when they formed that gang at Worley, they got me to join. I knew all about horses and beasts and how to catch them best.' They said they would do me in if I funked it, so I did, and caught them both lying down at ten minutes to three, and they roused up, and then I caught each under the belly, but they didn't spurt much blood, and one ran away, but the other fell. Now I'll tell you who are in the gang, but you shan't prove it without me. Now I have not told you who is at the back of them all, and I shan't until until you promise to do nothing at me. It is not true we always do it when the moon is young, and the one Adalji killed on April 11th was Full Moon. But, of course, there had been no animal killed on April 11th. One letter, received by George Adalji himself, and addressed from a lover of justice, said that they felt he was innocent of the slashings and urged him to leave Great Whirley. It later was discovered that this was sent by Captain Anson. And was meant, somehow, to get George to incriminate himself as the author of the Greater X Letters, as the third wave was now known. Hi, we're the hosts of the Fresh Hell podcast. I'm Annie in Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Johanna in Vienna, Austria. Join us every Wednesday for a new terrible story. I focus mostly on cases in the United States and not just true crime like the terrifying axe murders on Nose Island, but also shocking stories like the New Jersey shark attacks of 1916. And I love to tell you about more obscure European cases. And let me tell you, Germany has produced more cannibals than one would think. So if you're a fan of true crime, but you also enjoy terrible stories of all sorts, give us a listen. We'll tell you everything you need to know, and then some. Come find Fresh Hell podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Auf Wiedersehen. Hope to see you soon. Hi there, I'm Oz from the Oddball Aussie Podcast. Do you enjoy hearing about ufology, the paranormal, cryptids, and anything else that's strange or unknown? If so, then my show might just be for you. Join me for a different topic once a week, and a midweek show that's all about listeners' true stories. Follow me on Twitter, at AussieOddball or email me at theoddballaussie at hotmail.com. Hope you enjoy the show, and stay safe out there in the weird. On August 18th, a 14-year-old boy named Henry Garnett, an employee of the Great Worley Colliery, these were the days when 14-year-olds could work in coal mines after all, arrived at work to find one of the horses bleeding from a large cut on its belly. The horse later died. Police promptly went to the vicarage, George already at the solicitor's office in Birmingham. Said Sheporgi, On August 18, 1903, they called at the vicarage at about 8 in the morning, and in compliance with their request, Mrs. Adalji showed them a number of garments belonging to her son, George Adalji. As soon as they saw the old coat, they began to examine it, and Inspector Campbell put his finger upon one place and said that there was a hair there. Mrs. Adalji told him that it was not a hair, but a thread, and Miss Adalji, who was present then, remarked that it looked like a roving. This was all that Inspector Campbell had said to them about the hair before I came down. When I saw him, he told me that he had found horse hairs upon the coat. The coat was then spread out upon the desk in the study. I asked him to point out the place where the hairs were to be seen. He pointed out a lower part of the coat and said, There's a horse hair there. I examined the place and said, There is no hair here at all. Some further conversation followed. And then suddenly he put his finger upon another place on the coat, near to where I was standing, and drawing two straight lines with his finger, he said, "'Look, Mr. Adolji, there's horsehair there.' I looked at the place for a moment, and in order to have more light upon it, I took the coat up with both my hands and drew nearer the window, and after carefully examining him, examining it, I said to him, "'There is, to be sure, no hair here. It's a clear surface.' He then said that he wanted to take the coat with him, and I said, You can take the coat. I'm satisfied there's no horsehair upon it. Also, there were stains on the jacket, which police said were of blood and the horse's saliva, although this was refuted by both Shaporgi's insistence that the coat wasn't one worn outside by George, but only around the house, and by the testimony of John Hand, a great whirly cobbler, who saw George in town the night of the 17th and testified he was not wearing this coat. When George Adalji was arrested at 10.30 a.m. on the 18th, he said the stains were oatmeal. The pony had by then died, and a section of its hide where the wound was, was removed and taken by the police. Then the vicarage was searched again, and the police discovered razors. But as Shaporji was clean-shaven, and George had only a mustache, they're hardly damning evidence. John Kerr Butter, the police surgeon, examined the coat and concurred with what George had said. The razors had no blood on them, and that what was thought to have been blood initially was merely rust. The supposed saliva stains were merely food, and the sizable blood stains noted by the police were actually two tiny drops, clearly very old. Butter also found 27 horse hairs on the jacket, but as the police already had the piece of horse hide, well... The handwriting expert called in by the police, Thomas Gurin, concluded that all of the greater X letters had been written by George A. Dalgy. They, they amounted to a confession of guilt, they said, and since they were all written by him, he had also issued the threat against Sergeant Robinson made in the letter quoted in the introduction. Therefore, he could be charged not only with the animal killings, but with threatening the life of a police officer. Thomas Gurin, by the way, was also a handwriting expert used in the su- case of supposed con man Adolf Beck, and as such had already been entangled in one case of wrongful conviction. While Adalji was in the, se- in the Stafford jail awaiting his trial, there was another development. Another animal killing took place on September 21st when a horse belonging to Harry Green, who was the son of T.J. Green, who owned the sheep killed on May 14th, was slashed. Suspicion in this instance soon fell on Harry Green, who confessed that he had slaughtered his own animal. The police attempted to get a statement from him alleging his familiarity with George A. Dalji, but received, instead, a firm denial of knowing him, except by reputation. He was allowed to leave England, going to South Africa. Speaking of the case of Green, Doyle writes, Then why did they not prosecute? It will not do to say... "...that it is not a crime to kill your own horse. It is not a crime to shoot your own horse from humane motives, but it is at all times a crime, as a society for the prevention of cruelty to animals will very quickly show, to disembowel a horse on a dark night, be it fifty times your own. Here is an outrage of the same sort which has convulsed the countryside for so many months. It is brought home by his own confession to be the offender." and yet the police refused to prosecute and connive at the man's flight from the country. But why? If it was not that the prosecution of Green would bring out facts which would interfere with a successful prosecution of Adalji, then I ask, why? On October 20th, 1903, then, the trial of George Adalji formally began at the Staffordshire Quarter Sessions. The four-day trial proceeded as could be expected and after deliberating for only 50 minutes, the jury convicted George Adalge. He was sentenced to seven years hard labor at Lewes Prison in Sussex. Doyle proclaimed the trial, A kind of squalid Dreyfus case. The parallel is extraordinarily close. You have a Parsi, instead of a Jew, with a promising career blighted, in each case the degradation from a profession, and the campaign for redress and restoration. In each case questions of forgery and handwriting arise, with Esterhazy in the one, and the anonymous writer in the other. Finally, I regret to say, that in the one case you have a clique of French officials going from excess to excess in order to cover an initial mistake, and that in the other you have a Staffordshire police acting in the same way I've described. Shortly after the conclusion of the trial, new letters were sent to the police and to newspapers in Wolverhampton. Interesting, I suppose, given some of the initial references made in the original 1888 letters. These letters were clearly in the same handwriting as had been most of the 1903 letters, the handwriting that had been determined by Gurren to have been George A. Dalgi's. The man now signed himself G. H. Darby, and and it was said that he was captain of the Whirly Gang. He threatened to maim two horses on November 3rd. Sure enough, on November 3rd, 1903, Two horses belonging to a man named Stanley were killed. Darby was correct, but still, no one had any idea who he actually was. On March 24, 1904, several sheep were slain near Great Worley at the village of Landywood. In this case, a man named Thomas Farrington was convicted. Wool had been found on his clothing, and a button missing from his clothes was found near the dead sheep. Farrington was sentenced to three years' hard labor. Upon the conclusion of the Farrington trial, R.D. Yelverton started a petition to get Adalji released from prison. The petition re- received 10,000 signatures and was submitted to the Home Secretary, Herbert Gladstone, along with testimonials from many individuals testifying as to George Dalgie's character. While he elected not to fully overturn the conviction, He was persuaded by the sentence Farrington had been given to commute part of Adalji's sentence and ordered him immediately released. Upon Adalji's release, the case was taken up by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, among others, and a committee set up to re-examine the conviction. Doyle familiarized himself with the case and became convinced the half-Indian vicar's son was a victim of botched justice. Commenting on the minuscule bloodstains on the coat, he said, the most adept operator who ever lived would not rip up a horse with a razor on a dark night and have only two three penny bit spots of blood to show for it. The idea is beyond all argument. Once he later met with a man, one feature of George A. Dalgy, which Doyle seized upon as further evidence of innocence, was that of his vision. He was quite badly myopic, or nearsighted, and had never been prescribed eyeglasses. It was Doyle's contention that the poorness of a man's eyesight precluded any possibility of his having undertaken the animal slangs. On one occasion, he said, he saw a Dalji reading some papers and noticed he held the paper so close to his eyes and rather sideways, proving not only a high degree of myopia but marked astigmatism. As the idea of such a man scouring fields at night and assaulting cattle while avoiding the watching police. Was ludicrous to anyone who can imagine what the world looks like with myopia of eight diopters. An ophthalmologist consulted by Doyle concurred with his conclusions. Like all my- myopics, Mr. Adalgi must find it at all times difficult to, s- to see clearly any objects more than a few inches off, and in dusk, it would be practically impossible for him to find his way about any place with which he is not perfectly familiar. In addition, An inability of Adalji's to focus his eyes properly could account for some perceived sinister look to the man, especially for believers in physiognomy. And like most in the Victorian era, G.A. Anson was a strong believer in physiognomy, the idea that a criminal could be told apart from others by his facial features. Though he concurs with nearly every other author and researcher that George Adalji was innocent of the animal killings, D. Michael Rissinger rightly brings up that the mere fact that he was employed as a solicitor likely implied that his vision, while not the greatest, was possibly not quite as bad as all that. Another flurry of letters now surfaced. These claimed to be from a Martin Moulton, who was claimed to be a private investigator, who had been a victim of the second wave of hoax letters. Whoever Martin Moulton was, he was extremely well versed in virtually every facet of the case, both the harassment and the offenses for which George A. was convicted, and claimed to be able to prove who had actually killed the horse for which A. was arrested, Captain Anson received some, and unsurprisingly, he declared them to be written by George A. Arthur Conan Doyle, for his part, believed they were written by Royden Sharp. These letters soon died off. The committee that had been set up determined that the Staffordshire constabulary had indeed bungled the investigation and that George A Dolgy had been innocent of the animal killings and on November 7, 1907, to the displeasure of Captain Anson, the home secretary announced that George A was formally pardoned. The committee which got A acquitted, however, was not happy with the fact that no compensation or apology was forthcoming. They wrote in the days that followed the police commenced and carried on their investigations not for the purpose of finding out who was the guilty party but for the purpose of finding evidence against Adalji who they were already sure was the guilty man the re- the result has proved that he was not the guilty man and this inversion of all sane methods upon the part of the police has given untold mental agony to himself and to his family has caused him to undergo the ordeal of the double trial 3 years of in- incarceration and an extra year of police supervision. Apart from the misery which has been unjustly inflicted upon him, he has been unable to exercise his profession during that time, and has been put to many heavy expenses, which only the self-sacrifice of his relations has enabled him to meet. And now, though all these results have been, have been brought about by extraordinary conduct of the police, and the stupidity of a court of quarter sessions, The unfortunate victim is told that no compensation will be made to him. George Adalji was was restored as a solicitor, moved to Welwyn Garden City, living with his sister Maud, and to the best of my knowledge, practiced law until his death in 1953, with Maud then dying in 1961. But the story isn't over there. While undertaking the Adalji appeals, Arthur Conan Doyle received a letter from ANARC, which he believed which he believed was from the mysterious letter writer that had been harassing the Adolgy family for years recently uncovered documents in the files of the Staffordshire constabulary discovered in 2015 revealed that the letter was actually a fabrication and had been the result of a campaign launched by Captain Anson to discredit the campaign remember he had tried a similar tactic with George Adolge himself when he sent the, lo- the Lover of Justice letter in 1903. Another document in the Home Office files was submitted to them by Captain Anson. He said that he had received from a man named Christopher Hatton, he said that he had heard from a man named Christopher Hatton, who was a good friend of Horace Dalgy. Hatton told Captain Anson that Horace had said, I don't think George killed the horses, but he did write the anonymous letters furthermore stating that he knew this for a fact. He claimed to have caught George writing one of the letters in the 1892-1895 wave, and in fact said that the harassment in that instance ceased when he threatened to tell their parents. Just before the acquittal, on August 22nd, 1907, a horse belonging to a Mr. Cartwright was found wounded. Police thought that horse might have actually been wounded by a cow, however, and not purposefully attacked. Then, on August 26th, another horse was killed at Brown Hills Colliery, slashed upon the belly. Another had been wounded, but did not die. A man named Horace, or Hollis, Morgan, a butcher employed in Wolverhampton, was arrested for this offense. Another horse, belonging to Levi Brown, was wounded near Breewood on September 5th, but not badly. On November 6th, 1934, a 57-year-old man from Darleston named Enoch Knowles was arrested and confessed to writing a number of obscene letters to women. It was later discovered that he had been sending a number of harassing letters over a period of at least 25 years. He had written to judges, both witnesses, and accused parties in criminal cases, and on one occasion, it was reported, even a member of the royal family. He often leveled death threats against various individuals threatening to kill Olive Curtis of Cannock or her husband Percy Winifred Randall of Birmingham and Alice Rowley of Wolverhampton when Mrs. Rowley testified during the murder trial of Eric Hobday that he had stolen her car she was sent 34 letters by Knowles who claimed that he was a friend of Hobday and went on to say quote vile and filthy things it was said that he had also written letters to the widow of of the man murdered by Hobday and to the judge. Knowles also claimed to be, quote, Jack the Ripper of Whitechapel. While there were no direct accusations of Knowles being involved in the Adolgy case, with the general subject matter of the letters he sent, and his residence in close proximity to Great Whirly, it wouldn't be exactly surprising. Interestingly, Enoch Knowles lived on Park Street, and one of the Martin Moulton letters had been posted from 3 Park Road. Commenting on the renewal of the attacks in 1907, A. Adalji commented, Before my son was arrested, as it seems to me, the police approached every case of outrage with the preconceived theory that my son was doing them all. Since his arrest and conviction, they have approached the outrages with another preconceived theory, which is that glass or another animal in the field must have done it. I think the preconceived theories of the police have utterly misled them, and that they have not consequently been successful in finding the real perpetrator. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, Leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at Forgottendarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at patreoncom forkdark. And so, until next time, this is Andrew signing off. Discover more shows like this one at StraightUpStrange.com.